I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, This morning we will uh, read uh, this entire chapter. You might ask, why are we doing this? Uh, One of the things that we'd uh, like to demonstrate is that the New Testament does not come out of thin air, but we find that in the gospel of Christ is the fulfillment of all that was promised and all that was expected uh, through the prophets of the Old Testament. We find here, particularly in verse 3, as you note, Uh, that Isaiah 35 verse 3 is actually quoted in our sermon text this morning. Here, the the prophet Isaiah speaks of the highway of holiness that will be opened up just as Israel was led out uh, through the Red Sea, so through the Lord's Messiah, Christ our Savior. The miracles that he wrought, a highway of holiness would be opened that Christ's people might walk on their journey to the gates of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and shall be called the path of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, and it shall belong to those who walk along the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And now turning with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Uh, We will read uh, verses 1 and 2, but then skip down and focus this morning in particular on verses 12 to 17. Uh, As you're turning there, I just want to say I appreciate your prayers over the past few weeks as uh, you can see I made it safely, um, I'm however a little irked, uh, nobody told me that it rained here, uh, <laughs> thought it was all sunshine and lollipops. So out here in August, there was no clouds, uh, made it through South Dakota, no clouds, Montana, no clouds, Idaho, no clouds, Washington, few clouds, the Columbia Gorge, it was like the days of Noah. It was a good trip. It was about a 40-hour drive. Leaves you tired, uh, but it was a good kind of tired. I think many of us know the difference between a, being tired from a, a good long day of work and being weary, uh, don't we? So many of us are weary. This passage that we have before us addresses the weary Christian. See, the author of Hebrews, throughout the whole of his letter, what is perhaps, in fact, a written sermon, Uh, treats the Christian life using the controlling metaphor of a marathon, a race to be run, or a boxing match in the arena. 
And here we find that, in the, that if the Christian life is like a marathon, there are so many things uh, that can trip us up. And for those of you who run races, I don't. The only run I do is a Taco Bell run. The only, uh, for those of you who do do marathons, be exciting at the first, the, the, the shot of the, uh, the pistol. Uh, but I think there's a difference between when you start the race and when you're 18 miles into the race. The end still doesn't be, seem to be in sight, and you are just whooped. I think the Christian life is a lot like this. What do you do? How do you catch your second wind? What do you do in the midst of of weariness. You see here this imagery in chapter 12 of running the race, of entering the boxing arena, yet in verse 12 we see and hear of the drooping hands and the weak knees. How do we endure? How do we persevere faithfully to the end? How do we make it through the long haul? How do you keep on track with a sprained ankle? This morning I'd like us to consider this passage and the encouragement that it gives to get us back on course that we might catch our second wind that we might find in this passage a balm for weary hearts, that we might run the race before us with joy. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, who is the founder, the perfecter, the model of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And after describing the nature of this endurance as paideia, as instruction, or as discipline, the discipline of a father loving his children, the discipline of a marathon, he now continues down in verse 12, Therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's inspired and infallible word. Let us pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon it. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given your people this gracious gift, the gift of your word, that through your word you would delight to cleanse and to pardon us to reveal yourself to us, but also to give us instruction for the days ahead. We ask that through your word we would hear Christ speak from heaven, that we would be comforted and fed. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, continuing to use this controlling image of the marathon, the author of Hebrews uh, provides specific directives. I don't know if you, uh, how many of you ever played sports uh, in high school. I think in hindsight, I would make a terrible football coach. Oh, did you fail? Well, run quicker. Um, Did you not win the game? Well, win the game next time. Uh, These are terrible coaching tips that you would give. Uh, No team would win by just saying, run harder, play faster, just go ahead and do the thing, win the points. Uh, What a good coach does is he provides specific directives 
for how to run the race, how to win the course that is set before him. And here we find that the author of Hebrews, like a good coach, provides three specific directives for the people of God, things uh, to counter the weariness that they have been confronted with in the course of the Christian life. The first we could describe simply as that of conflict. You'll see that in verse 14. Secondly, the problem of bitterness you see in verse 15. And finally, the question of sexual appetites you see in verses 16 and 17. So addressing three particular uh, issues that the church is having to wrestle with, things to help get them back on course, uh, dealing with their own conflict, dealing with their own bitterness and their own base desires. We see here our first point in verse 14 regarding conflict. You see what the author says, strive for peace with everyone. I think now being seven months into a lockdown, we're, we're suffering from a, a certain case of cabin fever. I'm sitting on this podium and it's, it's falling backwards here. That way I don't trip and fall backwards. That'd be awkward. So I'm much shorter than you thought. Um, I think everybody suffers from a case of, of short fuses, long toes. It's easy to get offended one way or another with uh, an economy that seems to be going down the tank in certain places. Uh, the surge in mental health concerns, the political and social unrest we've seen uh, in the nation around us in the past weeks. I think it's so easy to get offended at even the most innocuous statements, to read uh, the worst that we can into the other uh, person. And I think what happens is we end up starting to dig in our heels, to take a firm stance, willing uh, to, to, to die on, on hills that um, uh, we otherwise would not uh, die on. To do so in ways that do not accord with the path of peace. One of the things I'd like us to notice here, what I think is so fascinating about this passage, is that this passage associates peace with holiness. How many of us would associate the two together? When you think of somebody being holy, I think for many of us, at least for me growing up, I associated holiness or equated holiness with being cranky, uh, as if the greater the curmudgeon you are, the greater and more advanced you were in your own level of personal sanctification. But here, I want us to know Scripture's differing emphasis on holiness. There is a concern for moral purity. We see this all throughout Scripture. Uh, if you want to treat, see holiness as a as a multifaceted jewel, this is just but one sliver of it. Uh, there is a concern elsewhere for moral purity, uh, but it is so much more here. There's a, a focus, the focus here is on a moral purity that promotes godliness and one that promotes peace uh, as well. Remember what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. I think the women uh, right now are, are working their way through the Sermon on the Mount. What is it that Christ says uh, uh, to his people in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? They are the ones who are called the sons of God. See, it's a distinguishing feature of the beloved. It's a distinguishing mark and characteristic of the church. The church is known as people who make peace. And it's a great temptation we face, particularly in, in our own Reformed circles. I, I, I'm unabashedly Presbyterian, as you will come to know in the coming uh, months, weeks, and years. Um, and I think there's a temptation that we have, all of us, uh, as is uh, want to do in, in, in our circles, to, uh, to be right. And I think that's a good pursuit is to be right. But I think there comes a point in time where we try to be so right uh, that we begin to wage war against even our closest allies. 
uh, to begin to engage in uh, friendly fire, um, which turns out to be not so friendly at all. Something that leaves us exhausted, always being on guard, always uh, trying to spar with one another. And again, what I'm not saying is that there isn't a time and place for standing up for the truth. Um, you know, this is, I'm not advocating for kind of a Neville Chamberlain moment, peace at all costs, as many of y'all know Neville Chamberlain did with uh, the Nazi regime in uh, the Second World War. And there's a time to stand up for truth. Um, but what we see here is a focus on doing all we can to promote peace. It's pretty a temptation I think we all, faith, we all face to cut down others in the name of truth. But as, as Paul himself reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, this is not the footwear of the soldier of the cross. When you look at the armor of God, what is his feet to be shod with? The gospel of peace. We're to be known as those who make peace, even as Paul says to Timothy, uh, to deal gently with your adversaries. Gently. I think many of us fail to take that into account, even in our apologetic and evangelistic efforts. Here, the exhortation is to strive for peace with everyone. Strive for it. That means it will not always be easy. It says to strive for it with all, not just your closest compadres. That you do everything you can to keep a a close circle, a a hedge around the inner ring, but you let all other relationships fall by the side if anybody disagrees with the, the, the color shoes you're wearing. Rather, the goal is to strive for peace. Even what Paul says, remember he says to pray for your political leaders, your civil authorities. Why? That the gospel may spread peaceably. It's not encouraging some type of syncretistic religion. It's not encouraging compromise. It's encouraging a standing up for the truth in a gracious and peaceful way. It is the way of the cross. Knowing that sometimes our opponents will not act the same way as we do. Might be crucified for it, but this is the way of the people of God so how do we do that? You know, I, I think I, one thing we have to say is we're not responsible for every, everyone else responds. I'm responsible for my actions, not for yours. But as Paul says in Romans, insofar as it depends upon us, we need to pursue avenues of peace that lead to mutual upbuilding, to seek prospects that benefit both parties, if at all possible. Right? If you think about what does the Christian life look like, is, it, is the goal to win the game of Bible Jeopardy? The answer is no. There's a path of holiness to be walked. This is why we read Isaiah chapter 35 earlier. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship made in His image, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in those good works. The very reason that God has set us apart. The reason He has claimed the church as His own special bride is that we might walk the path of holiness and the path of peace. And here we see holiness consisting in the pursuit of reconciliation. The pursuit of reconciliation between offended parties. And here the author of Hebrews is quite clear that apart from this holiness, no one will see the Lord. Right, those who claim to love God yet are who are making enemies right and left are those who have pursued false paths. They're ones who have veered off the highway of holiness. And it says here that to fail to walk this highway of holiness is to fail to obtain the grace of God. See that in the opening part of verse 15, don't you? 
But know what it's not saying, and when it talks about failing to obtain the grace of God, it's not saying that you earn God's grace. That is emphatically not what is being said here. Rather, what the author is simply saying is that those who have been justified by God's grace are, will indeed be sanctified by God's grace. This is a package deal. God doesn't justify you and then fail to sanctify you. God doesn't sanctify one but fail to justify another. Romans chapter 8, those whom God foreknew, he predestined according to the image of his son to look like them. And those whom he predestined to sanctify, he also predestined to adopt and to justify and to preserve that they might persevere faithfully to the end. This is a package deal. The benefits that we have in Christ, it all comes, they are distinct benefits, but they are also inseparable benefits. And so we cannot claim that we are justified if we are not walking the highway of holiness. We should not expect an assurance of salvation if we are continuing to revel in secret sins without a longing to grow in repentance and faith. The gospel of God's grace urges us on, it spurs us on to repudiate ungodliness, as Titus tells us. And if you have been pardoned of your sins, if God has forgiven you of your sins, then a distinguishing feature we have is to seek reconciliation with those whom we have offended. Isn't that what Jesus himself says in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. God's forgiveness of our sins provides the model for which we are to act against those who have sinned against us. So when it talks about peace and striving for peace, this is not just a striving for that fuzzy feeling. I like fuzzy feelings. They're fuzzy. It's enjoyable. That's not the goal here. That's not the the purpose that is brought into view here. The peace is the end of war. It's through the work of Christ that war between God and man has been effected for all who turn to Christ. Because the wrath of God comes against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, and yet all who turn to Christ, that sin has been pardoned, so now there is peace. There is now open friendship. That's what we have at the table this morning. That is what we will celebrate this morning The end of hostilities has come. Now God comes to welcome his people as friends at the dinner table. Peace is not just the fuzzy feeling. It's the striving to bring an end to hostility. It's a distinguishing feature of the church. It means apologizing for when you have sinned against others. It means having to recognize your own sin. It also means being willing to forgive those who have sinned against you. Purity consists in peacemaking, to being the proactive party in pursuing peace. Highly alliterative, so you know it's true. Proactive party in pursuing peace. That's what we are called to do. And it is only the pure in heart that shall see God, is what it says here. This is the path of holiness. Apart from this, no one shall see the Lord. And that is the sight, that is the goal of all we are set to do in this life, is it? The goal of seeing our Savior one day face to face. Whether we drop dead of a coronary first, or whether Christ comes uh, to deliver us before we pass, our ultimate hope is to see Christ our Savior. 
We pursue conflicts. These are venues that weary us. These are some of those sins that trip us up that Paul speaks of in verses 1 and 2. But it's not the only issue that wearies us, but there is also that of bitterness. You see this in verse 15. See to it that no bitter root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, defiling many as a result. What does this mean, this root of bitterness? I think we can speculate in a number of ways, but I think better than idle speculation, we should recognize that the author is actually citing Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is why it's so important to know the Old Testament. He's explicitly using language that harkens back to Moses' final sermon before he himself passed on. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 to 20. This is Moses speaking to the people of God as they are on the cusp of entering the promised land, not unlike the church in the wilderness in our present situation. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who when he hears the words of the sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart saying, I'm going to be safe. Even though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart, this will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is don't let a root of bitterness spring up. What is this bitterness? Bitterness here, according to Moses, are those very things that expose the idolatries of our very hearts. As we reflect on our own lives, is there anything in your life that has caused you to grow bitter? Do you look back on your life and chafe at the fact that you weren't as successful as you hoped you would be? That your ministry is not as large as you dreamed it could be? Are you bitter that that special person did not cater to your every whim and desire? That the one thing that you thought would bring you peace and happiness has fallen apart, and now you sit alone and bitter. I think this is something that exemplifies the root of bitterness. It exposes those things that anger us, those things where we did not get what we wanted. Perhaps it tells us of those things that we treasure more than the Lord himself. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 73? Who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. Are you able to say the same thing as the psalmist there? That I don't desire anything else on earth apart from Christ. Perhaps the daily providences and the anxieties and the frustrations we come up against might be given to expose those things that we love more than Christ himself this very idolatry, so that when they begin to be uprooted by the Lord's providential discipline and care, begins to tell us those things that we worship and love more than the living God. Bitterness tells us where the landmines of idolatry are planted beneath the surface of our hearts. Why is it that conflicts arise, James says? You possibly add, why is it that bitterness arises? Does it not expose those unsatisfied lusts of our own idolatrous hearts? What Hebrews is warning us is to uproot bitterness. Perhaps this is the very thing that's wearying you. 
but it's not just wearying you, it's defiling you, and if you don't get a handle on it, it will defile everyone else around you. Bitterness is described here as a cancer that festers and spreads. It's one of those sins that not only messes with you, but something that infects those around you. The exhortation here, specific directive from the coach of Hebrews is to uproot bitterness. It's yet another way in which to get back on course. And yet there's one final directive that we find here in verses 16 and 17 regarding our very appetites. It's kind of kicking the knees, isn't it, to go down in scriptural history uh, as a negative example. I don't think it's anything we, any of us ever want is to go down in any history book as the don't be that guy guy. And yet that's what became of Esau. Think of it, for all of his life's ambitions, goals, and dreams, for everything he ever accomplished, he's known for this. This is what his life boils down to. Don't be sexually immoral like Esau. How many of you would, however, associate Esau with sexual immorality? It's probably not the first place your mind went, is it? Your mind probably went to to the incident where he traded in his birthright for a cup of soup. What does this have to do with a cup of soup? But notice the direction Hebrews takes us. See to it that you're not sexually immoral like Esau. If you remember the story of Esau, you could read about this uh, this afternoon in Genesis chapter 26. Esau married outside of the covenant. He pursued women who loved and pursued foreign gods. And Genesis 26 makes this pointed statement that as Esau takes to himself pagan women, pagan wives, it made life bitter for his parents. It made life bitter for Isaac and for Rebekah. Look how his heart was so easily turned away. We don't even have to stop with Esau. We can look at other figures in the Old Testament. Think of Solomon. Why is this guy on the face of this earth at the end of his life becomes the biggest idiot, the biggest fool? Here's a man who loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet look how his wives, his pagan wives, turned his affections away from his God. All right, the Old Testament is not trying to endorse some type of you know, um, a pre-modern form of racism. It's not the issue that Esau was marrying outside his clan or his tribe. It's that he was marrying outside the covenant. He had joined himself to women who have joined themselves to foreign gods. And look how it turned his heart away. Look how it turned Solomon's heart away who did the same thing. You remember how exciting it was for those of you who are married the first time you met the person who would become your future spouse. Think of the butterflies, the euphoria, the fuzzies, right? We like the fuzzies. Remember how exciting it was on your first date. Think of how easy it would be in the throes of infatuation to cast all caution to the wind if you married someone whose affections were not set on Christ. How easy would it be if that person were not a believer to draw your affections away from the living God? This portion of Scripture, again, addresses the weary Christian. Again, notice the controlling metaphor. For the race of the Christian life, don't get entangled by sins. And for those of you with weary knees, 
on the marathon of the Christian life, those of you with the drooping hands in the boxing match of the Christian life. He's addressing weariness. Why are you weary? What is it that's wearing you down? What is it that's wearing you out? How easy would it be for one tired of fighting the fight alone, perhaps even battling loneliness, seeking to find the special someone who would give them just enough attention that you would be willing to cast away the covenant as Esau did, to cast away your inheritance for the pursuit of passing pleasures, to think that in just getting this one little thing compromising the faith would seem like no big deal. How easy it is to justify missionary dating when all the hormones are raging. I think this should be a lesson to all of our youth, right? If you want to get married, this is what Paul says. That's great. Go for it. You're free to do so, but with only one stipulation. You're only free to marry in the Lord. Only if they're a believer. Be careful. Watch your step. This is a big step that could trip you up for the rest of your life. Esau failed here. He pursued Canaanite women. But I think it exposed an even deeper problem with Esau. Esau was also that man who sold his birthright for a single meal. Right? What, is, what, what do Esau's proclivities with foreign women have to do with a cup of soup? I think the answer is very simple. Here's a man who's governed by his appetites. Here's a man who pursues whatever he wants, when he wants it. Be it sex or be it stew. This is a man who does what he wants. And he found both of these of greater value than his birthright. And he threw it all away for a moment's pleasure. I think it should cause us to examine our own lives. What desires govern our life's course of action? Is it the pursuit of pleasure or is it the pursuit of holiness? Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think this provides the limits test of the race that we are called to run. Flee sexual immorality, Paul says. Every other sin is outside the body, but this one, it's not unforgivable, but it is unique in its consequences. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, these are consequences that will wear you down. So to return to my earlier question, what is it that wearies you? As we consider... These three patterns of behavior, three specific examples, that of conflict, that of bitterness, and that of our own based appetites. Could it be the very things that dominate your life, the very things that you're pursuing, be it the desire to get your own way, even at the expense of peace, be it the fostering and festering of bitterness because life has not given us what we have wanted, or be it because we are seeking pleasure over purity, Could it just be that these are the very things that are wearying us? When we thought that these would be the very things that would bring us peace and wholeness at last. See, seeking to satisfy our own lusts, our own desires, is analogous to a man pursuing a mirage in the desert, thinking he sees water just a little bit up further on the horizon, and as he pursues it further and further and further, thinking he's getting closer to the thing that will quench his thirst, It proves ever elusive, ever evasive. Think of the the man lost at sea, thirsty, begins to drink more of the salt water, but the more of the salt water he drinks, the thirstier it makes him. Aren't these at metaphors for our own pursuits of sin? 
the pursuit of conflict and getting our own ways, the, the fostering of bitterness, the pursuit of our own sexual desires. They're like mirages in the desert. Perhaps these sources that we thought would bring us comfort are the very waters that have parched our throats all the more. But the good news that we have is that there is a source that promises true rest for weary hearts. There is one who has promised to fill those empty voids, one who will cause the weary runner to mount up and soar on eagles' wings. And that source and fountain of every comfort and blessing is found in one place alone. It is, in, it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who is better than all you can hope or imagine. What is it that you want that you do not already have in Christ? Do you suffer from a gnawing sense of guilt and you drink to try to numb the guilt away? We'll find that the solution is found in the forgiveness of sins. Do you ache from loneliness? Well, we find that in Christ there is found reconciliation, adoption, and even friendship as Christ has promised to be the friend to sinners. Do you feel so dirty from years of habitual sin? The great promise holds out to all who are willing to turn to Christ, that in Christ there is freedom from sin and cleansing from the shame of sin. In Christ is found the fount of every blessing, the balm for troubled hearts, the rest for weary souls. As Christ himself said, come to me, all you who labor, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The sermon's exhortation is, is not to turn to me, but to turn to Christ, the one who promises to fill every need. See, there's nothing lasting that this world has to offer. That's why the author of Hebrews describes us as pilgrims, not seeking to build our kingdom here on this earth, but seeking that everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that has more certain foundations, a kingdom that still awaits its consummation here on earth. Seeking a heavenly city with a Savior who has promised that for all who endure, we will see Him on that last day face to face. And that is the very hope that should drive us as we pursue the path of holiness every day. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Christ. We ask that through Your Word this morning, You would not only provide this as medicine for our souls, but also that you would spur us on to deeper repentance and through it deeper holiness. That even as you have justified us by faith, so you would continue to sanctify us through the work of your Spirit as we continue to cling to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.